Well, welcome again to another episode of There's Just Something About Kansas City, where we talk to the people about the places and things that make this such a wonderful community in which to live. And I, this show, if there's one person that you had to have on this show that we had to have, was the young lady sitting directly across from me, everybody's favorite lady <laughs> in Kansas City news forever, mm. Ann Peterson. You and thanks so much for coming oh, in. Number great. two, I can't tell you how many people have said, have you ever heard from Ann Peterson? And what is Ann Peterson doing? Where is Ann Peterson? What is she doing? And that <laughs> oh. was way before we started this. Oh, so goodness. you were right at the top of my list for us to uh, to get this done. But welcome. Thank you so much, Frank. I, yeah. I have goosebumps when you just said yeah. <laughs> that. And, and it is such a privilege and honor for me to be here with you and, and have this time just to reflect and to share and 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 uh, go back to the good old days and uh, the, what I call the golden era of broadcasting. Uh, how fortunate we were and, and still are to call that uh, our, our legacy, yours included. I mean, goodness gracious. When I think about those days and and uh, all of the news teams and how close we were, mm-hmm. yet we were we were competitive, but it was a healthy competition, and we were all doing things for the right reasons, and doing it really for the community. Yeah, we did. There we was did it no for the community. There was no left or right. I'm, I'm no. not. We don't get into politics on the show, but there was. No. It was just. It was going to be. You know, I'm, we're going to be talking to Kay Barnes on the show as well. Yes. She was. Uh, the first cousin of Walter Cronkite. I mean, it was so down the middle. We're gonna we're gonna give you the news, mm-hmm. and this is how it affects you, both positively and negatively. And then you can make your own decision about you know which side that you fall on here. But it was it was, it was really it was journalism. It was true right journalism it really as was, yeah. it should be, mm-hmm. and that's what I I really loved about it. I mean, we had balanced news. We had national, international, local. We had features. We had uh, great sports and, and, and weather. I mean, and, and, and community-minded. I remember when I first started back in 1979. It was, it was actually uh, just the yesterday. end of March just 1979. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, I hadn't quite turned 22 yet. Gosh. And... and we were such a community-minded station right from the get-go. And, and that really developed my whole mon- uh, my mantra, my, my mindset about uh, what a gift it was to have this profession and what a responsibility it was to be able to sit at the anchor desk and broadcast, to be invited. You're invited into the viewers' homes, right. whether in the morning or uh, in the evening or at bedtime, you're invited. So that is that invitation is very special, and we took it seriously, and and so, but uh, in the long in the long run, God gave us that gift of broadcasting so we could go beyond the anchor desk, right, and make a difference in the community, right. And we'll talk about yeah. a lot of those yeah. things that you did at Channel Five for a long period of time. But your your trip. To get there, to get here to uh, to Kansas City, was if you're talking journalism and what a lot mm-hmm. of people did uh, in journalism, it was a quick trip. It was. I mean, I, I know you were born and raised in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, yes. correct? Yes. One of the most beautiful places Thank in the you. country. Places incredible. Especially except, in the summertime. Except, yeah, I was going to say, except for, let's see, the two months of summer and then, you know, the pre-winter, post-winter, and winter that they have in Wisconsin. Because I was in Green Bay for a little while before oh, yes. I came to Kansas City, so I know exactly what you were doing. But uh, uh, in, in Lake Geneva... Born and raised, yes. grew up there. What was what was Lake Geneva like? How idyllic was that? Yes, it was a small town where everyone knows everyone. And uh, at that time, it was like five thousand six hundred people. And you know, Lake Geneva is uh, a glacier-made lake, mm-hmm. so it's spring-fed, and uh, and there are many communities around uh, Lake Geneva. But uh, I grew up in a 
believe it or not, a two-room schoolhouse when I went to elementary school from first grade to eighth grade. And uh, one through four was in one room, five through eight was in the the other room. We didn't really have a gymnasium until like my seventh grade. And uh, and then there was an addition that was put on. But my goodness, uh, there were only seven in my graduating class. Oh my gosh, from grade school. From grade school. And then maybe 250 from my high school. From high school, right. And from, from Lake Geneva... Then I went to Northwestern University. Yeah, I went to Medill. Medill School yeah, of which is, uh, and also the uh, the School of Speech. Uh, I started out at school in the School of Speech as a theater major, and then switched over to radio, TV, film. And this was what was interesting. I had all of the production classes in radio, TV, film, and I thought I really want to get before the camera because mm-hmm. I want to learn uh, journalism, and I also want to learn. Uh, what it takes to be in front of the camera. And so I met with the dean of the School of Speech and the dean of Medill School of Journalism, and I said, what if we develop an exchange program where Medill students who are learning how to write and all of that journalism, but they could also get the broadcast background and vice versa. And they thought, well, that's not a bad idea. And so my, uh, the end of my sophomore year, then I became the first student at Medill, and they, we had this exchange. And so I ended up becoming a double major. And that's and what was interesting, on my 10-year college reunion, I learned that not only had those two schools integrated, but several of the other schools at Northwestern had done the same. So it became an integrated educational system for all the students at Northwestern. Right, which is way smarter than just trying oh, to narrow somebody. Because a lot of journalism back in those days, everyone wanted to write for newspapers. Right. That was the big deal. It wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, everybody thinks, well, journalism, it's all broadcast TV. I said, no, no, no. Journalism mm-hmm. was journalism. Journalism was journaling, writing. And they were the writers who went on to write for all the famous newspapers around the country, including here for the KC Star. Uh, but you, yeah, the integrating that and doing that, yeah, that was just a natural thing. The amazing thing was you graduated Okay, in right after you were out of seventy seven in nineteen seventy seven, and you went to work. Was your first job in South Bend? It was South Bend, Indiana, right where Notre Dame is. Yes. But it took ten months to get my first job in broadcasting. Okay, so what did you do after you graduated to the time you got that job? What, what? So while I was at Northwestern, mm-hmm. as I said, I was getting all my production classes at the School of Speech, my journalism, my writing classes in Medill School of Journalism. And then I worked in Chicago and became uh, exclusively with Shirley Hamilton Talent Agency. So I was getting on-air experience doing commercials. Right, you're cutting tapes, right? Cutting tapes Mm -hmm. and all of this. And so I learned a lot there. So when I graduated, I stayed in Chicago for that first 10 months, continued to work with Shirley Hamilton, did a film, I did a lot of commercial work, and then I was working with a production company uh, doing some uh, videotaping and and that sort of thing for them, and then just pounding the pavement, you know, just going to interviews. I went up to Green Bay, went to to Chicago, of course, of course. That was was crazy for me to think about that. (laughs) But uh, uh, eventually I went to South Bend and, and actually it was uh, uh, a notice on Medill School of Journalism that there was an uh, entry-level position available. Now, don't tell me it was on a cork board in the hall. It was a cork board on the hall <laughs> at Medill. And so I called him up and I, and I went down there and I did an interview and, and also an on-air tape. And they said, you know, we're going to take a chance. And so I started... At 21, wow. uh, in South Bend at WNDU-TV, which is right on Notre Dame's campus. Campus, yep. And uh, so I was a reporter and then uh, quickly became the morning news anchor mm-hmm. um, and uh, for the Today Show. Okay, so I was doing the cut-ins during You're the doing the cut-ins, a five-minute cut-in oh, at yes, the bottom of yes. the hour, right? And then eventually they, they uh, advanced me to uh, be the weekend uh, anchor producer. And so this was insane. Uh, it was the best training ground ever because I was a one-man band. Right. I would go to my uh, my fellow reporters during the week 
and say, do you have any stories that you can put in the can for me for the weekend? And then I would produce the show and then anchor it, but I'd have to back time it while I was doing the show. <laughs> I would go and get all of the, uh, the, the, uh, the stories off of the national and, and uh, get some people to come in for interviews, Interview. et cetera, et cetera. So it was really, it was, it was the best graduate training program I ever could have had in broadcasting. <laughs> yeah, right. And you, you were a one-man band before the one-man bands were one-man bands. Exactly. Which they are today. <laughs> now you have everybody has to do, they shoot their own stuff, they do their own right, stories, right. they edit it, they put the cover over it, they do the whole thing now. Yeah. But you were doing it back then, so that's, uh, yeah, that's incredible. And I was there only one year. And, uh, and then my news director, Mike Casserly from KCTV, it was KCMO at the time, he was in South Bend and saw my uh, my weekend newscast and called me and said, we have a, a reporter's position available. Are you interested in moving? And I thought, oh, my goodness. I would love, you know, I thought, this is a phenomenal Get me out of South Bend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I loved South Bend. Yeah, it well, even though you're a Northwestern grad and I know. Dame, one of Notre Dame's yes. rivals at that oh, point. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Dan, uh, Dan Levine and, yeah. and uh, you name That's it. Right. And um, so then... I came for the interview at KCTV five and uh, got the got the job as a reporter, and within three months I was advanced to the anchor desk because okay. Karen Foss, who was co-anchor with Wendell Anschutz, she went to St. Louis, St. Louis, and then they moved me up to the anchor desk Gosh. with Wendell. Okay, we'll talk about Wendell here in a minute. Everybody loved Wendell as well. Yes. God bless him and God rest his soul. I know he's a one, just a and wonderful the greatest man. great man guy. In the world. Um, but the situation, okay, you've been here three months. Yes. You're 22 years old. That's right. Okay, and all of a sudden, Karen Foss leaves, who had been, you know, she had been really popular here Very in Kansas much City. So. And then she moves to St. Louis, which is a bigger market than mm -hmm. KC. But then all of a sudden, you step into her shoes. I can't imagine some of the, not the trepidation on your part, but some of the backlash. Did you? A did lot. You, uh, how much backlash did you get at that well, point? Well, quite a bit, actually. But I had great support at the station from my general manager, Phil Jones, and Mike Casserly, and several several people there. I mean, they embraced me and, and said, you know, you can do it. In fact, the first ad campaign was Ann Can. First of all, you have to remember, I'm 22 years old. I look as young as a... Like you're 15. Like, like I was 15, <laughs> okay? And, and I thought, I can't wait till I'm a little older, and, and, then, and then, then maybe I'll, I'll look like I'm, I'm uh, old enough to be right. on the news. So, <laughs> uh, so that was, you know... I, I felt like I really had to prove myself. And mm -hmm. I was as green as the Kentucky bluegrass when I first started. I knew that. I knew that. So I really felt it was so important to look to everyone around me. Mm -hmm. Everyone became a mentor. And you never assume anything. You always felt like you had to. You were only as good as your last broadcast. Right. And 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 so that's that was my mantra. I didn't feel like, oh, well, I'm the new kid on the block and you know, I, I, I can do this. Look at me. Thing. I'm 22 no. and I've got this job. You know, I'm and not I'm, a hot shot. I'm big time. No, absolutely. Right. You know, you have to earn your stripes. Yeah, you do. You have business. to earn your stripes in this business. Yeah. At least that was the mindset uh, when we were when we were starting. Right. And I, I think probably your, your biggest champion at that point was Wendell Andrews. Wendell was I amazing. Mean, yeah. You know, he... Uh, there was a 20-year age difference, and I looked at him as right from the very very beginning like the Walter Cronkite of Kansas City. And then not only that, but he was also the Charles Osgood uh, type of reporter because he he was exceptional as a journalist and, and presenter, but really journalist first, presentation mm -hmm. second, but he was, he was great at all of it. And and he did. He took me under his wing and gave me the confidence. And and together, I really feel like that's why we became such a really close uh, close knit team all through those years. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I first started, I was the youngest female anchor in the country at age twenty two. Right. Uh, for the size market, and then fast forward. When after 22 years with Aunt Wendell, we were considered at that time the longest running anchor team in the country. Right. And, and it's because of, of uh, the mindset and the philosophy of the station 
and and like I said, Phil Jones was amazing. John Rose, um, fabulous general managers who who wanted to keep this team together. And good, goodness gracious, our first team, we were together for like 10, 15 years. That was, the weather was Mike Thompson, Mike right? Thompson. And then you had Jack Harry, Jack Harry. my buddy, yes. uh, Don, Don Fortune, Fortune, and Gene Fox. I yes. think they're all in sports. Was, today, you're lucky you have one guy in sports, let alone three. And yeah, that, that news team carried on for a long, long period of time. I, I think the biggest thing for me, as I remember back, seeing you two on the air all the time, was the fact that it was... Wendell was such a fatherly type figure anyway, okay? And it was like he was there with his daughter doing the news, mm -hmm. you know? But he, his smile, his acceptance of you, uh, the whole thing, you not assuming some that you were some no, big deal in town. Not despite at all. the fact you had all these accolades going with the fact you're the youngest and then you became the longest running news team. That never seemed to affect you or or anyone really on that staff that you had. Everybody continued to, you know, really work their butt off despite the fact your numbers were incredible. Well, and I, th I, that was, I think that was a byproduct of, of what we were trying to achieve, right? When we sat down at that anchor desk and looked into the camera, we're looking at our friends. Mm -hmm. Our audience, this, our audience was our friend. Th these were our friends. And, and uh, we had so much fun as a team. And uh, it, it was just, th that was the best part of, of, of the day, really, was sitting down together and, and um, uh, giving everyone the, the, the information they could use that affected their heart, their mind, and their pocketbook, so yeah, to speak. Right. <laughs> and, and you were really going to get a baptism of fire because shortly after here, just several months, I think, was the Kemper roof collapse, oh, correct? Yes. Yes. It was just before the Who. Was it going to be the Who concert, yes. I think, or something? It <laughs> snowed, and the Kemper's roof fell in from the way of the oh, snow. Not, no, it, actually, it was a thunderstorm. Oh, okay. It was pouring down rain. Oh, it was the water. It that, was the that water caved that right. caved it in. And, oh, yes, that uh, was my very first live broadcast wow. ever. Because we had ENG. I, we, first, we had film in South Bend. Then uh, uh, ENG, Electronic News Gathering, began. Right. That's and a videotape camera. That's yeah. a videotape mm -hmm. cameras. And then when, we, when I came to Kansas City, we hadn't done live shots yet. So this was my very first live shot. Wow. And we were up. Uh, north of the river, almost to the airport, covering the thunderstorms. And then all of a sudden we got a call, you've got to get down to Kemper Arena. So we dashed down there, and the only person that was there was the police officer, and, and they were banging. No PIO. And no PIO. <laughs> Which nobody. Would be the public information officer, no. who's usually the guy you see Correct. giving all of the updates uh, to all, the news media. And, and the big entrance to Kemper, mm -hmm. you could see how the roof had collapsed. But then, just as we are about to go live at the top of the hour, they're closing and banging on the door, trying to close the, the, uh, uh, the big. The big, uh, the yeah, big, the garage uh, gate. Gr garage yeah. gate. Mm -hmm. And so. I had no one to talk to about what actually happened. No one knew yet. And that was daunting. <laughs> yeah, that was daunting. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden now comes your all of your training at Medill where yes. you did the commercials and oh, a little right. bit of the acting stuff and all that store stuff where you now I've got to ad lib what's going on. Some yeah. you know, I'm on. <laughs> so I better start talking it about something here, right? It yeah. was scary. Trust yeah. me, it was right. scary. <laughs> right. And then of course you, you covered many, many other things. Of course, the tragedy of the um, the Hyatt, yes. the Skywalks collapse, uh, which was is probably still indelible in your mm -hmm. mind today, isn't it? Well, actually, I will tell you that I was in uh, Reed Black and I mm -hmm. had uh, we were in London doing advanced coverage of the royal wedding. Oh, that's right, uh, and we Prince were there, Charles and Prince Princess Charles Diana. and Princess Diana. Yes. We were there for two weeks, and on the day that we were coming back to the states was the day that the Hyatt collapsed. Oh, collapsed that day. And so when I got back um, that evening, it had already collapsed. And, and we were just like immersed into the aftermath of that. And that was just horrific. Yeah, it really was. Absolutely horrific. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. You never forget that. No, huh? never. And then uh, and what was the, uh, the wedding, the royal wedding like? 
to well, cover? That was exciting because we were, you know, we were like when we were doing all the advanced coverage, we divided it up. So, uh, you know, it was just getting the taste of of, of uh, uh, how London was preparing and and for the royal wedding and and uh, just from the souvenirs to the people to just all the color commentary. We put together a lot of different stories so that mm-hmm. when the royal wedding occurred, we had some stories that kind of fill in and, and gave that color. So how was how did the broadcast work then? Because the satellite, the satellite industry wasn't uh, big then. Uh, no. In fact, it was about the mid '80s before, before everybody in town got the trucks That's and true. all that sort of thing. So did you send the packages back via airline? Did you send them back? No, we via brought BBC? them back here. We oh, brought you brought back everything here. back, and then I we got put sure. it together here, and then did a half hour special. And then did a special on it. Our okay, own yeah, that's exactly right. Yes. Oh, that's boy, they were the old days, weren't they? They were. Good <laughs> God, a lot of great specials that we did during those days. Yeah, right. Because you had time to do them. It wasn't like uh, they say hit the ground, give me two or three things today, and mm-hmm. you know, then you're going to be on. You know, morning show, you're going to be on 5, 6, 9, and 10. You're going to be on a morning show, 5, 6, 9, and 10. It was different than where you put everything together. And then you could really take your time and write it and really make it something in those days. That was was really, really special because it was quality, not quantity. Right. And we had our opportunity to work on our specials, our sweeps pieces, uh, where it was a five-part series. I did a 10-part series when I first came here. I'll never forget that on, on the energy crisis. And, and we were giving people information that they could use. Right. And, and, it was, and that was what was so, so special. And it wasn't just a minute and a half story. We could do some longer form pieces so that we could get in depth with the stories. Sure. And then do follow-ups on that. I mean, and then what I loved, too, is that there were different type of, of, of um, special reports that we did. Like Wendell did uh, Place to Place. He went to different places and talked uh, right. and reported on how unique that was. I did a series first called Face to Face. Stories about interesting people uh, in our community, mm-hmm. Extra- uh, ordinary people that made extraordinary differences. And then I did a store uh, a series called Family Health, which was probably the the one series that I loved the most, right? Because I was the first news anchor in Kansas City to specialize in health and medical reporting. So that made it challenging, and I felt like I was back in school again, having to learn. It was like being in medical school, because every day I had to learn something new about sure. a breakthrough or a, a preventative health um, measure. Or, uh, and it was for children, men, women, and seniors. And that, to me, was probably one of the most challenging and, and wonderful series that I did. Yeah, and, and I think that's the way people get got to know us as well yes. when we did things like that, especially live reports once the satellite trucks did come. And, uh, you know, we started doing everything live. Anytime something would happen, mm-hmm. uh, get the live truck out because now the news directors are paying, <laughs> the, the stations are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for this equipment. Well, we want to get our money back, so you get out there and use this stuff, and then, you know, we, we try to build up the ratings just the way they do. But that was, it, it was interesting because you talked about film, yes. and then it was ENG, it was the electronic news gathering, and the videotape equipment. Now, all of a sudden, you have the live trucks and the satellite right. trucks. So you went from the origins of the TV business That's for all right. practical purposes all the way through basically where they are now because it really hasn't changed that much. Some of the equipment's changed, but not mm-hmm. not the basic uh, tenets of mm-hmm. uh, what we had to do. That is actually true. Do you remember Do you remember the Spirit Festival? Oh, yeah. And, and the opportunities that we all had whenever there was a festival or the American Royal Parade right. or any of, the, any of the community events. We were right in the thick, in the heart of it all, covering it. Right. And I'll never forget, talk about when things can go really crazy bad. <laughs> One time a generator went out and we didn't have any, any power at all. And I remember Reed Black being at the st- in the studio broadcasting while we were trying to get another generator uh, and we were on the... We call that tap dancing. We were tap dancing. <laughs> tap we were dancing, tap dancing. Yes. And, and uh, 
So Wendell and I were going, okay, what do we do now? Well, the next year, they had a big tent on the north lawn of the Liberty Memorial. Uh And just before the 6 o'clock news, here we are, we're ready to rock and roll. And a storm blows in, a thunderstorm, and the wind whipped the tent off of our set. We had the news director, the general manager, everybody holding on to this, uh, onto every angle. <laughs> About time they angle, did something. <laughs> every, every angle of the tent. And here in our papers, are all our scripts are all, you know, blowing away. So we became <laughs> the 6 o'clock or the lead story of the 6 o'clock news that, that evening. Yeah. It was hysterical. Yeah, so, and, and I can remember too. That's can that, happen. <laughs> yeah, that's that Spirit Fest where I think everybody then started making mudslides coming down the North that's Lawn. That's right. Remember the people would oh, just yes. have a couple libations <laughs> or whatever. Next thing you know, they are they are tobogganing <laughs> on their backs down the uh, North Lawn of uh, of the uh, World War One Museum and Memorial. Oh right? my, it's crazy. Yeah, some that, that is really some good stuff. And you really with your. You also uh, were very involved in the Gift of Life Foundation with Children's oh, yes. Mercy Hospital, right? Oh, very Talk much a little so. bit about that. So this is what was so phenomenal. Okay, Gift of Life, is uh, that's, that's an organization that promotes organ and tissue donation. Right. How that formed uh, was because I was working uh, with my family health was working with a lot of the hospitals throughout the Kansas City area, right. very involved with Children's Mercy Hospital, uh, always co-hosted the Children's Miracle Network, right. which was a benefit for Children's Mercy and KU Children's Center. And uh, the PR director for Children's Mercy called me and said, we have a story that we would like for you to do exclusively. And it's about a little boy um, named Luke who has just been born. And he needs a liver transplant. And so we would like for you to follow this little boy who's less than a year old before, during, and after the transplant. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't know the name of the, uh, of the family. I walked into Children's Mercy, and I'm introduced to the parents. And I looked at, at them, and I go, oh, my God, Kim, Nate, Harbor. Kim and I had worked together four or five years, four years earlier uh, when we when um, we uh, spearheaded the City at Peace Festival mm-hmm. in 1992 and 93. We worked together to launch that, that festival. And here now, uh, we were w- doing a story together. And so it was just, I, lo- I said, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity Here's another God wink, mm-hmm. right? right? Here's another God wink. And so, so I follow them all the way through, and, and, and then I was there when they got the call that uh, a donor had been found and the liver was being, uh, he, we had to get Luke to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so I covered that. I was there in the, uh, in the emergency room and into the operating room when, when the liver uh, arrived, and then we followed him uh, after that, and and what was really amazing was that the donor family, the Drake family, the reason why Luke was able to get that liver was because they uh, they lost their son uh, to an anaphylactic attack. They were down in Springfield, but they learned through their church that this little boy. Luke needed a liver transplant, so they made a directed donation to Luke. Wow! So that became part of the story as well, and they allowed me to interview them, and hence that uh, that series ended up being called "Angels Among Us" because little Aaron Drake was the angel who gave the gift of life mm-hmm. to to Luke, and then. Nate and Kim formed the Gift of Life Foundation and then asked me, along with with Chris Drake, among others, including the transplant team, to be part of the founding uh, board members for the Gift of Life Foundation. Wow. 
It was just amazing. It and was. and what's we started by we, it was a two phase, and I'll make this a little bit quicker. But you're fine. Are we okay? Oh, we're okay. We're but fine. But this is this is so beautiful. So uh, they were able to Kim and Nate were able to get a sculpture called Joie de Vivre. It's um, joy of life, and Richard Alexander is the sculptor from uh, from uh, California. So he created the sculpture. And then that was donated to the Stowers Institute for mm -hmm. Medical Research, which is standing there right now. That was phase one. Phase two was to bring gift of life into the school system and teach kids the importance of organ and tissue uh, foundation, uh, t uh, organ and tissue donation. Basically, just planting the seed with them in elementary school middle school and high school right. and get letting them make the choice because everything is about choices. Yeah, it is. And letting them take this information home, discuss it and then come back and make a choice. Mm -hmm. And because we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know when something tragic is going to happen. And unless you discuss this earlier uh, with your family, the time to discuss it is not when a tragedy occurs. Right. And, and, um, so it's really amazing how it has been uh, very transformational and, and uh, beneficial for many yeah. families. Well, we talked about this before, and I discussed it with you before we went, uh, mm -hmm. before we did this. Uh, we're both in that uh, group that doesn't want any more members in it, okay? We oh. both lost a child. Uh, you lost um, and I'm your, sorry for your you. son and you too. Your son, uh, Brian, in 2009, and I lost my son, Brett, in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and you talked about this, but your son was basically an organ do donor. He was an uh, organ at donor. The, yeah, at, at the time of, of his accident. And they were both lost in an automobile accident. And uh, tragic, um, stays with you uh, every day. You know, every there's day. something that's going to remind you, whether it's a song or a a phrase or a sentence or a somebody's rainbow, name, a, a rainbow, rainbow, something, butterflies. whatever. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I'll find a penny yeah. that's heads up oh, yeah. and I'll say, Hey, Brett's just yeah. saw me today. You better believe um, I know we want people out there to know sometimes they think that people who like us, who are in the public eye a lot, um, Oh, you live this this magical life, you know, nothing ever happens to you, and you know what it's like in life, and uh, we just want everybody to know that is not the that case. That is not the case. No. Uh, not at all. And, you know, I, I, I've i shared this story before, and, and uh, but I think it's important to share this again. Uh, you know, I have never taken my life for granted because my life was cut almost very short when I was 12. I was involved in a motorcycle accident, at that age, and I wasn't supposed to be on that bike. I disobeyed, but I because I always gave in to peer pressure. I couldn't say no. Right? Couldn't say no. I've always been a people pleaser and a fixer, and and I I, I remember I wanted to go horseback riding that day, and my girlfriend who was fourteen said, "No, let's go on the bike," and she wasn't allowed to have someone on the bike either, so I said yes. And uh, we're driving down this, this winding road. She loses control of the bike. Neither one of us have a helmet on. She hits a rock about this big, and I am not exaggerating. I fly into a tree, break, put my arms up like this to break the fall. I have two compound fractures, a broken leg, internal bleeding, a head fracture, a punctured lung, and a concussion. Half of my skull was split from here through the eye socket to here. Had they taken me to my local hospital, I never would have made it. Right. So they rushed me to Rockford Memorial Hospital, where a team of specialists uh, met me, stabilized me, and I was in a coma for about a week. And during that time, uh, I came to, and my grandfather had brought in a big Snoopy dog in ICU, which was not allowed, but they figured, you know, they were told, my parents were told to call their minister. Right. So I survive by the grace of God. He gave me a second chance to live. But I had to do it his way. I had to be a follower of him and a leader of 
those around me. Right. And and so I walked a very lonely road trying to do the straight and narrow. Especially at that age. Okay? Right. And they're talking 12, 13, right. 14. But it's all about choices. Yeah, right. It's make, you can make the right choice or the wrong choice. And I made a wrong choice. And I had to face the consequences for that. And so, and it affected my life and my, my physical development and everything for, for a long, long time. I, I was, but fast forward, fast forward, it is March 13th, 2009. And it was the day before spring break. And, and Brian... Uh, it was last day of school before spring break, and I talked to him in the morning as we, he went off to school. Talked to him at 5 o'clock. I talked to him at 9 o'clock. And he had been out with some friends, and he was driving too fast down the plaza right by uh, Pembroke. Yeah, right by Pembroke. By Elementary. Pembroke mm-hmm. School. And he was on his—he he reached for his cell phone or something, and— took his eye off the road, went across three, all three lanes, jumped the curb, he had his seatbelt on, hit the tree, and of all the places on, on Brush Creek, there was a clump of trees, and he hit the tree, and it swung around and hit again. And, and they revived him at the scene and, and brought him to the hospital, and then I get the call, and, oh, and then at 10.35, uh, I, I kept calling, 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 and it just went dead. And then the knock on the door comes. Do you have a son named Brian? So when you, the police car careens into the driveway, right. that's not what you want to hear. It's no. every parent's worst nightmare. Yep, absolutely. So as we're driving down Ward Parkway with the police officer, I'm going, Lord, I thought I did all the right things. I thought, I thought as long as I did everything right, that everything would be fine. And he says to me, Anne, this is not your story. This is Brian's story. And, and so when we got to the hospital, Brian's, Brian's injuries were not fixable. They weren't fixable. And, and um, they revived him enough so that he could be on life support. Right. And so we, it became a time when we knew that there was nothing more we could do. And I actually had to go up to the, I went up to the ICU nurses. I said, I think it's time to talk about the next step, Mm -hmm. organ and tissue donation. That night we had a prayer vigil around Brian. And... uh, my mom and dad were there, of course, and my dad, he sang Children of Our Heavenly Father in Swedish and then in English. And then, and then I look across and, and I see Kim and Nate, and, and I go up to Kim and I said, my role has now changed from being a voice of gift of life to a donor mom. Right. And I'll do whatever I can to help you share this message and why it's so important. Right. And what a powerful message to deliver. Oh. And, you know, we, we talked about it, and I didn't know all the, the details there, but the exact same thing. And, you know, there's a lot of times when people will say something as tragic or whatever, and, and they'll go, um, uh, I know how you feel. Well, <clears throat> you really don't know unless you have walked, are, in, those have walked in those shoes. But I know how you feel because yeah. almost the exact same thing son was in an automobile accident in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they said, better get here as fast as you can. Uh, so we got there as quickly as we could. He was on life support for about a week uh, at, at that time. And then that decision comes that, you know, a lot of the people around him are going, you know, we've seen miracles, yes. you know, somewhere down there where he could recut, you know, maybe whatever, but we don't think so no. in this case. And then, then you make that decision no, I know. We have to get him off life support. It still gets me to this day, but it's just and always will. But that's the hardest part, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I had the problem with, you know, you talked about 
you know, you walk this great line with, you know, your religion and your belief or whatever. And that's when I had a really bad time. I know. when I started just going. Well, you ah. know, the thing is, though, for Inc. Okay, so when Brian, when we had Brian service, first of all, we had to have two services because it was right. spring break. Right. And, and, um, and Brian had, uh, uh, he had actually, um, recorded at age 10 this song called uh, My Little Peace Dove on the piano. Mm -hmm. And um, and I uh, shared that with our worship singer. And he said, you mind if I do the man-child version of this? And so he did. And then I put together this video and and um, and, and we share that as part of the, the service for when all the kids came back from from spring break. And even though I, I was so angry and, and going through all the, mm-hmm. the emotions of grief, I, at that time, at that service, I actually realized how great God was because through every, every hug, every act of kindness, every word that was spoken, mm-hmm. it was like God was working through them and reaching me and saying, I am not going to let you fall. Right. And 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 um, and Brian's okay, because death became a door to living in eternity. And I truly right. believe that with all my heart and soul. Yeah. That our soul, our souls, your son's soul, my son's soul, all of those souls that have have left us, they are alive. Yeah. And, and I feel like uh, the loss stays with us forever. Yep. It still feels as raw today for both of us as it did day one. We don't get over it. We have to grow through it. Yeah. We have to grow through it. And that's what helps us put one foot in front of the other. It's not easy. It's a day-to-day challenge. Yeah, it's what we want everyone to know here, too. There is, you know, how devastating it is, how some people feels like the door is closed and another door is never going to open, but it does open eventually. It does if you eventually. Just take one step at a time, just like you, know, you said. I don't know how I would have gotten through this yeah. without faith, Yeah. to be honest with yeah. you. I mean, uh, I relied so much on that, and, 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 and uh, that became my strength. And um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens yeah, me. Yeah. That you know, and and Brian had a little verse going through vacation Bible school, and I was having a really rough day that day. And and uh, I look in the mirror, and, and he could see me with tears in my eyes. And in his angelic voice, at age ten, he is singing the Joshua one nine, and it's be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord God is with you wherever you go. And that became his mantra. And that's why I have this little bracelet on. And I have many more of these. But I'm going to give this one to you. Brian's way was to be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. That's a wonderful thing to live by. I'll tell you what. It is. Yeah. And now yeah. that's going to be yours. That's, thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. And just let everyone know, you know, Ann got through hers with the faith and whatever. I think I got through a lot of mine with anger. Okay, I was angry, mm-hmm. but it eventually, I eventually reconciled it. But the anger for me mm-hmm. it approaches both ways. It does. <laughs> the anger for me was what got me through the initial mm-hmm. stages of the grief. Uh, for myself. And how so did that, that happen for you? How did anger help you? Well, it just, that? I was just angry. I was, you know, instead of praying to God, I was yelling at him. Mm-hmm. Going, how could you do this to my son? He was just, mm-hmm. he had he had some issues when he was younger and he was now just, he was on his way. He's 28 years old. He was finally gotten over 99% of that and was well on his way to really becoming a productive human being and the whole thing. And it just was a long, 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 long battle. And then this, yes. and, then, and then you took him. Yes. You know, why? Well, why? What did he do? I mean, he didn't, he, do, he didn't do a thing, right? He didn't but I, do but, anything. But the only way I could reconcile it was 
yelling Absolute, at them. Okay, absolutely. So that's just the way that, that, that I handle it. And people handle it, they all handle it differently. They all handle death absolutely. and grief differently. And that's just the way I handle it. I've gotten over it. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've gone through there with a, a lot of talking, mm-hmm. not just to other people, but to myself. And then trying to help other people um, uh, where, you know, I will be called upon from time to time to talk to groups of people who not only have children who have died, mm-hmm. but also children who are uh, have drug addictions and yes. are, are having issues or whatever. So that, that helps me get through just if I could help one person, that's the only thing that matters. And, 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 and just think, you, you said something that was very, very important, that even though your son had all these issues prior to... He was at a place, right? Right. Where he he was he was whole. He was he, he he his soul was healed. Right. He had taken that step. Yeah. He had taken that major mm-hmm. major step. Right. And so that in itself is ginormous. Oh yeah. Because he made a choice. That's right. And he we made just, a choice. Right. And we just want you to know that you know. Bad things happen to good people. Absolutely. And that and that is that's just part of the part of the it's, situation. I don't wanna end it right there. No. Okay. We, don't have to. we just wanna, you know, celebrate no, those kids. Absolutely. But I, I just wanna know and I think everybody wants to know, what is Ann Peterson doing now? And if you if you saw the <laughs> list I have in front of me, okay, uh, Ann Peterson has never slowed down. So when you were unceremoniously fired at KCTV in uh, 2003, uh, one door closed and you just went right through it and you just continue. I, the, the one thing I have to, and I know you're uh, a represent, you have Ann Peterson Productions, yes. okay, uh, work with Arbonne, which is the makeup yes. uh I find that out from my wife, okay? Uh, The CCR, which is continuous chest compression to help people. This goes back to your your, your medical Mm -hmm. uh, thing. And and the other deal is you have a documentary through Ann Pearson Productions, and you are a competitive ballroom dancer, (laughs) which we had to delay this this interview because Ann, four hours this morning before she came on, believe it or not, was practicing for ball—I mean— Folks, the Chiefs don't practice for four hours. Okay. <laughs> Ann was practicing for four hours for the ballroom dancing. Oh. Tell us a little bit about, let's talk about the ballroom dancing first since okay. it's so much fun. And then we'll talk about okay. your documentary, which could be released here soon. Yes, I, I would love to talk about it all. I tell you. So I, uh, I've i danced all my life. So I started when I was knee high uh, and did everything, ballet, tap, jazz, modern, and followed, uh, continued with that. Uh, until I was in college, really, and, right. and was in a couple of dance companies and did all that fun stuff. And even when I came to Kansas City, I, I did some training, and then the life happened, and I got away from dancing, although I Raising always, a family. I always <laughs> love to dance. Put the music on, and I'm there. And uh, actually, my father was the one. My mom and dad loved to dance, and and um, they were great. Uh, when I say ballroom dancers, they were like, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers when they were dancing. And my dad was also very musical and loved to play different instruments and was a, a great tenor singer. And so music, music and dance was always part of my life. So 10 years ago, a dear friend of mine uh, in my neighborhood, she uh, was taking ballroom dancing and she said, Annie, you really need to get back into your dancing. And I was going through some tough uh, tough times mm-hmm. from a personal standpoint. Sure. And I thought, you know, I think this could really be fabulous. And so I went to the studio, was introduced to my instructor who came in from Atlanta to do lessons for a, a group of people here in Kansas City. And as soon as I stepped on the floor, I felt like, wow, I'm back alive again. And so I started dancing, taking lessons, and, and, um, and then eventually started doing a little bit of competition. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing this now for, for the last decade, a little bit longer than that. And I do it just because it makes me happy. And, and it's not about winning or, or uh, you know, trying to be the first place or second place or whatever it is. What makes it so fun is just getting out on the floor and just enjoying the moment. Right. You know, I don't want to 
we've been competitive all our lives. Now it's time to just do things that, that are fun and, and uh, bring joy to you. And, and uh, dancing definitely does that for me. I, I think you're still pretty competitive. Okay, when you get <laughs> okay. out there, and there's somebody out there, and you're number 22, and you're number 19. I don't know if you have the little things on you anymore or not. You know, I'm thinking way back in the old days. But the, uh, you know, I, I think you see them dance, and they get a certain, uh, they get a certain. Uh, the judges give them a certain <laughs> point value. I think you turn to your oh, to know. your dancing partner and go. Oh, we can do better than this. Come <laughs> of course, on, of course. On. I'm We're definitely hard this. on myself. Yeah, right. Yes, right. I definitely am. So, so talk myself. about uh, just <laughs> just briefly about a few of the competitions. Are they local, they national, they international. Well, it is a dance sport uh, competition, so it is a pro am. Oh, competition. God. You get paid for this? No, I don't get paid for it. My instructor does <laughs> okay, because I'm the am in the pro am. Okay, so, uh, gotcha. My my partner is my instructor, and believe it or not, we only train once every three weeks. So I actually have my cell phone with my routines on here. So I have to practice on. By looking at my my phone. Oh gosh. Okay, and and so it's like we're on YouTube and we're trying to exactly. do the, the Texas two step or the Tulsa whatever they right, got out there. Right. <laughs> and so uh, there's competitions in Kansas City, all from coast to coast. I've been to Hawaii about three times competing, and um, up in Wisconsin. Colorado. I've been to a few, but I, I don't do it every month or anything like yeah. that. I'll be lucky if I get two or maybe even three if I'm. Yeah, right. You but try to scatter them out a little yes, bit, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because so, you you are doing other things. I'm, other, I'm doing other things as well. I yeah, say, you are. I sail competitively. Okay. Yeah, I still do. And my you started racing. that in Lake Geneva. In I'm Lake sure, Geneva, yeah. when I was a a, a youngster, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, went through the sailing program there, and and uh, uh, now I've been sailing for several years. Back. Uh, racing again. Is this a, this is single, right? What will they call the 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 bochi race? Well, there's uh, there's scows. There are there are many different classes of, of, of boats. But it's all by you're by yourself on you by no, yourself on a boat. No, oh, okay. not at all. all well, right. so it's a little some, bit bigger. There are some boats where you can do okay, by yourself, yeah. like okay. a laser or a, a sea boat or an MC. Now, however, uh, I've always sailed with. Uh, a crew. Okay. Okay. And and now I'm in a sonar, which is a four-person boat. It's a keel boat. So I'm the skipper, and I have my crew, and we have a, a main, a jib, and a spinnaker. So you got the so, guys running from side to side, oh, flipping yes. all the stuff. Oh, yes. Sail goes fun. ripping out there. Yeah, I'll bet it's it is. It's really yeah. fun. I'll bet. So I enjoy that a lot. Yeah. Okay. And I ski in the wintertime. Yeah. You gotta keep good yeah, and busy. It, yeah, she's not competitive. No, no, she she she's not competitive at all. Um, I know you also take care of your mom, I who you do. love very much. But <laughs> you you also because you go to and from Wisconsin a lot, and God bless her. Yes. And uh, you have Ann Peterson Productions, which you are doing and about ready to release. Melgus, the Wizard of Zenda. Yes. Explained to people. You just talked about sailing. Yes. And he was incredible. He was incredible. Okay, so a little bit about Ann Peterson Production. I'll be very brief. When I left the station, I started Ann Peterson Productions as my umbrella company so that I could do some, continue with some on-air freelance work and then video production for medical, corporate, and charitable organizations. And then I was working, I've been working so closely with a DHTV Digital, Mark Honer from DHTV, and we worked together a lot at the station when he was with CBS News and as a producer. And we did a lot of different projects, a lot of the Gift of Life Shadow Buddies uh, videos right. uh, that we did for them, the whole call and pump, continuous chest compression CPR I did with Mark. So all through these last 25, 30 years, Mark and I have done some incredible work. And while I was um, in the soon after I left the station, I uh, had a series called Kansas City Legacies with me on Time Warner. These were half-hour specials of people in our community ha who had really made some significant differences for Kansas City, just like what you're doing with yeah, your broadcast. Yeah, we're doing here. Yeah, exactly. Legacy yeah, it's videos. Wonderful. Yeah. So I thought to myself, I could do this in Lake Geneva. I did a, a, a video for my mom and dad who came from Sweden and started uh, our uh, family business from scratch in our garage as Swedish immigrants and entrepreneurs in, in America. And so I thought, you know, Buddy Melgus, 
who has been my mentor since I was a teenager and learned how to sail, and I sailed with his, his kids. I said, he's 80 years old. And a friend of mine said, you know, you really should do a legacy video on Buddy about his life and sailing career. And it was at the time when the old yacht club and sailing school was being torn down and the new Buddy Malga Sailing Center was being constructed. And I thought, well, what can I do to help with this project? And I thought, well, I can use my my work as a, uh, as a journalist mm-hmm. and create a legacy video and an historical video, two videos that I will give to the Yacht Club and Sailing School as my gift. So we did all the interviews and I interviewed Buddy and his wife and, and got uh, interviews with our sailing community in Lake right. Geneva and Wisconsin. And then life happened for me. My dad passed away in 2015, and the project sat on the shelf for three years. And Mark had gone through all of the video and said, you know, Annie, we've got the makings of a documentary here. And I'm one who, if I start a project, I'm going to finish it. (laughs) No, she's not competitive. Go ahead. (laughs) And I said, you know what? I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this done. And so I ended up self-funding this project and we went beyond Wisconsin and did interviews with uh, the people that Buddy sailed with and against. Here, Buddy is a two-time Olympian. He won bronze and gold in sailing in 68 and 72. And fast forward, he won the America's Cup, the, mm-hmm. the sailing's grandest prize, in 1992 with Wichita billionaire Bill Koch. That's right. And, and so... We were able to get interviews with Bill Koch, Dennis Connor, John Bertrand from from Australia, who won the America's Cup and took it away from America for the first time in 132 years from (laughs) Mr. America's Cup himself, Dennis Connor, in 1983. And, And Buddy was his mentor. And so we got all these incredible interviews, including Gary Jobson, who was an America's Cup uh, champion himself. He sailed with Ted Turner and was on the crew for America 3 and then decided to become and go back to ESPN as a sailing expert. So we interviewed him as well, and he's been incredible for our documentary. So it took us 10 years to complete this film because of all of these different setbacks, but the setbacks became actually golden opportunities. So we completed the film last fall, and I was able to show it to, to Buddy and Gloria, um, and and uh, he, uh, fast forward, he just passed away in May at 93, but he saw the film. He saw it before. He saw yeah. the film. And so That's awesome. That was that was very rewarding. Wow. Yeah. And then we were invited to the Annapolis Film Festival the end of March, and we were able to show the film uh, as the sailing showcase. And after that, uh, we have been receiving requests, uh, screening requests from yacht clubs from coast to coast, Canada, including overseas in Scandinavia. And... Uh, all of the yacht clubs and sailing organizations have been using the film to help sail it forward, which is the ultimate goal of this film. Two goals. One, to pay tribute to the greatest sailor in the history of the sport so that future generations will never, ever forget him. Mm-hmm. But the second most ult- and the most important goal of all is to sail it forward so that yacht clubs and sailing organizations can use the film to promote their sailing organizations, their, their sailing school programs, and other charitable causes. And sure. so uh, that's really, it's just been uh, an amazing journey. Okay, when are we going to see it on Netflix as a documentary? Come well, on now. Do you have any pull? Uh, yeah, well, I, mean, I don't know. sports all you, these years. You, you would be the best <laughs> spokesperson for this. You sold uh, me already. I mean, that, that sounds like a perfect, that sounds like well, one of their documentaries. You, well, you know. One of those things they do. In 2024 will be the America's Cup. That's right. The and, perfect time yes. to push it through. Yes. And, and Buddy's grandson, Harry Four, so it's it's he's continuing with his mm-hmm. grandfather's legacy. He's on the junior America's Cup team. 
along with his partner, Finn Rowe. And so greater things are yet to come for them. And so who knows what happens? Hopefully, one of the streaming channels will be able to uh, see that our documentary can really fit, fill a niche uh, in the coverage of, of uh, these sailing or uh, these sailing events that like the America's Cup that's going yeah, to be right. 2024. It's perfect timing. I hope to, so. To really, really push that forward. All the best on that. And, you know, you, you've talked about things. You're from Wisconsin. You've been yes. here. Uh, you go to and from to see your mom all the time. You've been all over the country, ballroom dancing. You've been back. There are all these yacht clubs all over the all over the country. You've been in England to cover the, the royal wedding and everything else. But here you are. You still are a transplanted Kansas City, and you could live oh. basically anywhere. Why? Why did you stay? You could have left angry, whatever, in 2003, right after no. Channel 5 left you go. Tell me never. why you stayed here in Kansas City. I could never leave Kansas City. You know, when I first came here, I thought, oh, my goodness, maybe I'll be here for two years, and then I'll, I'll move on with my career, and who knows what, you know, what lies ahead. But as soon as I put my feet on the ground here in Kansas City, there was this feeling that I, that I got right here in my heart that I knew that this is the best, the, the best place in the world. It's the best kept secret in the Midwest. It's a pearl. Kansas City is a pearl. It's the heart of America. That's why it's, it's considered the heart of America because of the heart of the people who make this community. You know, when you're in local news, you can live anywhere in the country and the geographical location changes. But you make your decision based on the people that you live with and, 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 and you serve. And I spent my entire adult life here in Kansas City. Kansas City is home. Lake Geneva, Wisconsin is where I grew up. Right. It's still home to me. But Kansas City will always be my home, and I will always have a very, very special place for the people, the community it's at, in, as a whole, and, and just what we have that we have to give to one another here. Yeah. It's incredibly special. Just special. And as we say on the show, there's just something about Kansas oh. City. So love so you. Special. Thanks love so you much too. for coming in. I thank know the people you. are just going to be thrilled to see you again oh, and hear from you, you again. God so bless you. God bless going forward, kid. Thank you. You got it. Thank you. Thank you, Kansas City. Love you.